We are this summer looking at the parables of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. We continue in Matthew 13 with a parable that, Jesus, that uh, Audrey read to the children beginning in verse 47. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was uh, cast into the sea. And all sorts of fish were drawn into it. So when it was full, the fishermen brought it ashore. They sat down and put the good fish into baskets and threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous. And they will be thrown into the flaming furnace where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. According to a USA Today poll this week, 64% of Americans were not very happy with the verdict in the Casey Anthony trial. Now, I have to tell you, I didn't watch the trial, and even if I had watched it, I probably wouldn't have understood everything that I was watching. But I do watch people, and I know that human beings have been wired by God with a sense for what is right, with a sense for justice. And I suppose those 64 percent of people were feeling that perhaps justice didn't happen. Justice is a part of the universe that God created, and we were created to desire that. And I had a feeling four weeks ago, uh, similar to that, I was walking uh, through a museum and we got to a Holocaust exhibition. And when I finished walking through it, there were two emotions that hit me. One was a profound sense of sadness at the loss of all these innocent people. But the other was anger. Who did this? And did they pay? Were all of them caught? Will they be punished not just in this life, but beyond? There was a sense of indignation. And Jesus understood that. I mean, biblically, you can see that God's people had that sense uh, that they've been wounded and hurt. And that justice needed to take place. One of the more famous psalms is Psalm 137. It is written when God's people have been carried into exile by the Babylonians. But before the Babylonians carted them off, they uh, burned Jerusalem pretty much to the ground and tore the temple of God apart. And so in this psalm, it begins like this. It says, by the waters of Babylon, we sat and wept. But the psalm then ends this way in verse 9. Happy are those, and it means uh, people of God, who will take the infants, and it means the babies of the Babylonians, and dash their heads against the wall. A clear cry for some sort of justice. Jesus understood that. He came along several hundred years later when Rome occupies the Holy Land. And the people by the Romans are mistreated. They suffer. They are humiliated. Many are killed. And there are people calling out and crying out for the justice of God. Now, there are some people who decide to take the justice of God into their own hands, and they advocate an armed revolt against Romans and killing the Romans through terroristic acts, however you get the opportunity. These people were called zealots. It's interesting to me that one of Jesus' twelve disciples is a guy named Simon the Zealot. It's further interesting to me that another of Jesus' disciples was a guy called Judas Iscariot. Iscariot was the name of a town, Ishkarot, in, uh, not in Galilee, uh, where most of the, uh, the 11 other disciples are from, but in Judea. And it's the only town in Judea that was a zealot stronghold. So many hypothesized that two of the 12 disciples, one-sixth 
of Jesus' closest inner circle were those who were demanding and plotting for the vengeance of God, and they were going to take it into their own hands. It's in this situation that Jesus tells the parable of the same net. It's something that they would see in daily life on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it's about a net, and, and fishermen would fish this way. They would take this large net. It was 500 to 850 feet long. It would be about 20 feet in height. And what they would do is attach rocks to the bottom to sink it into the water, corks to the top so that it would uh, then float at the top, And then they would either tie it between two boats or have it tied between a boat and people on the shore. And they'd start dragging that thing. And it collects everything in its path. And when it collects all the fish in the path and it's full, the fishermen take it to the shore. Now, according to Leviticus, good Jews cannot eat fish that do not have uh, scales or fins. Those are considered the bad fish. And they must be thrown away. So it's something they would see in everyday life. And by telling them this parable and by saying this is how it works in the end of the age, Jesus was clearly talking about the last judgment and that there would be, or maybe not the last judgment, but there would be a judgment. And using the net as an example further emphasize this point because in Ezekiel, in, in Daniel, other places in the scripture, nets are used for the rounding up of bad people. And they are tied in with the judgment of God. Now, in Habakkuk, interestingly, uh, the net is used by bad people to round up good people and make them suffer. So with a picture of the net and talking about angels, everybody got it. And this is what they got. Jesus said, there will be a day of judgment. There will be a day when God sets things right. And that's good news. That's good news. If you looked in our bulletin this morning, one of the quotes is from the former bishop of Durham uh, in England, N.T. Wright. And what he says is, if God is wise and good and loving, as we think, and God just let child abuse run unpunished and run rampant, would he be wise and loving and good? If God didn't take a stand against racial bigotry, would God be wise, loving, and good? If God didn't set right human trafficking... Would God be wise, loving, and good? God wasn't concerned about war crimes. Would God be wise, loving, and good? It's good news, the judgment of God. It is clear in the scriptures that one day God will set things right. N.T. Wright in another book puts it this way. He said, in the 20th century, there were many theologians who believed that human beings would get better and better. And so the judgment was just not only arcane, but a sort of useless notion. Notion. And then Wright said, along came the Holocaust. Some years later, Darfur, Rwanda, Burundi, and silly notions that there would be no need for judgment go right out the window. So the good news is, there's judgment. God will set things right. I think another part of the good news is this. If that is so, then what we do in life matters. Revelation says this. Blessed is the person who dies in the Lord for their Good works follow them all the time that you were quietly helping and you thought no one noticed. Someone did. Someone did. All the times, conversely, when you thought the evil got away, got away with evil and no one noticed, well, someone did. There is an accounting and that's good news because it means our life matters. 
To quote uh, Old Testament theologian Walter Brueggemann, and he says, what this tells us is that discipleship is not just some sort of pretend game. That discipleship, that following the ways of God is a life and death matter. What we do is serious business. It's taken seriously by God. It should be taken seriously by us. And that's good news. Now there's some downside to it, I suppose. One of the downsides might be what we often see, and I think the parable of the wheat and tares we talked about a few weeks ago speaks to it. Since we, we are wired to seek justice and to seek what is right, uh, sometimes we decide that we can call what is right infallibly. And oftentimes we become judgmental. And we become agents of judgment instead. It's like the pastor I grew up with loved to tell the story. He was a pastor in a small town earlier in his ministry. And he talked about the time the Baptists got a new pastor. And so they said to their Methodist friends, you need to come and, and hear our new pastor. He's really good. And so they did. And they said, how would you like him? And they said, well, we liked him. And he said, oh, yeah, we like him a lot better, said the Baptist, than the old one we had. And the Methodist said, well, we liked him too. And they said, you did? We didn't like him. Well, why didn't you like him? Because every Sunday he told us we were going to hell. And then the Methodist said, well, didn't your new pastor just tell you that this morning? Oh, yeah, they said, but he didn't act like he was glad about it. <laughs> well, we get to be agents of judgment where we're all too glad to point out who's in hell and who's not. Or we get to be agents of judgment where I've been, where I'm all too glad to condemn those who are too glad to point out who is in and who's out. And judgment can run rapid. That's a bit of a downside. Now, I think Audrey pointed out quite correctly that one of the beauties of this metaphor is it reminds us that as Christians, we need to be largely about that collecting, about dragging that net, about gathering as many into the love of God as we can do. Uh, when I was on vacation, I would notice when you'd get to uh, significant tourist attractions and sites, there were two kinds of people. Uh, first, there were the hawkers out there giving you the advertisement, the discount, and trying to get you to come in. And if, in fact, you went in, there were the bouncers who were there to make sure you had a ticket. And it seems to me that one of the temptations of the kingdom of God is that we can be tempted to be more the bouncers than the hawkers. Be more about who's out rather than who's in. And so Audrey's quite correct that a big part of this parable could indeed be drag the net. Collect everyone. Let them all know of the love of God and, and it'll get sorted out. But I also want you to note that it's quite possible that since there are all kinds of fish, everything in its path in the net, that part of the point of the parable is, well, you and I are in the net. We're in the net with the others. And all of us give an account we've done and what we haven't done. The separation, according to Jesus, we have to be careful that you don't push parables too finely, but according to Jesus, the separation is not between the believers and the non-believers. The separation is the wicked and the righteous, which seems to have something to do with behavior. Well, I'm really glad to tell you today that there is a judgment that God will set things right, but I'm even gladder to tell you that God's going to take care of it. Not me. Because I'm not always sure I can judge another person's motives. 
I'm not saying that good is really bad and bad is really good. There are things that are clear, but often you and I don't know the hearts. And we don't know what's behind everything. At the 930 service, we also had the pleasure of baptizing twins. And so we have a different setup because of the music this morning. So the usher was very clear to tell me, be careful about the cord next to the baptismal font. Don't trip on it. And so what did I do immediately? Unplugged the amp and tripped on it. Now, if you're looking from the distance, you're thinking either, well, that's a bad place to put a plug, or you're thinking, he's an idiot. But you don't know which it was. Now you know. (laughs) But we don't always judge things accurately. And so it's helpful to know there is one who sees. Um, Scott Hare talked about a friend of his who became a Christian, and he said, one of the things that happened to me as a Christian is I don't see things in black and white anymore. Now I'm beginning to see color. There's all sorts of things that go in, and maybe I know, maybe I don't, but I leave it to God, and, and God will figure that out. And there will be a judgment. The other thing, I'll be honest, is this. I have the ability to excuse myself in areas that I don't excuse other people. So if I'm late for something, I know the six reasons why I'm late and, 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 and terrible things that happened and the cars that got in my way or whatever. But if you're late to something where, I'm, where I am, I'm pretty upset about it. You know, we all have that ability. But you know what I know about myself, and I bet it may be true of you. I have an either, even stronger ability to be harder on myself than I am on other people. I have a tendency not only to play judge with others, but to play judge with myself in the least kind and helpful ways. Wouldn't it be great to be judged by someone who knows my heart, who loves me, who actually died for me? This summer I've been uh, reading a number of different things. I'm reading about the life of the most famous rabbi of the 20th century. His name is Abraham Joshua Heschel. He became very good friends in the 60s um, with a, a leading Protestant minister in New York City. And uh, one summer while Heschel was out of, out of town, uh, this prominent pastor in New York City went through divorce. And because it was in New York City and because he was prominent, um, it came out. And... He wasn't happy about his role in the divorce. The minister wasn't. And he was beating himself up. And so when the rabbi came back and he said, I wish you would have called me, said the rabbi, while you were going through this. And he said, well, you weren't around. You were in Los Angeles. And he said, I wish you would have called me. I could have helped. He said, well, how could you have helped? He said, I'm getting through it. I'm getting by. And he said, I would have told you about my father, a great rabbi in Warsaw, who was divorced very early in his life, and then later married my mother. And then the rabbi looked at the famous Protestant pastor and said, you Christians, you are so perfectionistic. He said, it will be your undoing. Imagine the rabbi straightening out the Christian about the grace and love of God. It will be our undoing. I undo others. I undo myself. Judgment is coming. That's good news. The better news is that God will handle it. Almost 30 years ago at Alamo Heights, we had a guest preacher before I got here. His name's Fred Craddock. Very uh, famous preacher and teacher of preachers. And this is what he said toward uh, the end of his um, active ministry. He said, when I was in my teens, I wanted to be a preacher. When I was in my 20s, I wanted to be a great preacher. 
He said, now I only want to be a Christian. Someone who lives simply, who loves generously, who speaks truthfully, who serves faithfully, and leaves the rest to God. I'm with him.